Morning. He always does that. He saves like the big one for last, you know, like the finale. So I have to get up then after that. Okay, um, we're going to continue in the book of Matthew. Uh, now, I know we've been in this book for a long time, but I, I've really enjoyed uh, this book. We learn as much when we're preparing these messages. God speaks to us so much, uh, and I've learned so much and was and able to, you know, just like get a, a deeper opinion of how of uh, the great sacrifice that Jesus made for us. But we're going to be here for a while, that being said. Uh, but we are in a new series called the Go Tell series. Um, and today, the title of the message is Preparing for a Miracle. Now, I'm not going to give you a bunch uh, of recap, because to be honest with you, this could be a long one. So I'm going to make sure I, or it may not be, I don't know. But uh, we're just not going to get a ton of that. But So the last few weeks, uh, we've been looking at the crucifixion and all the events that surround the crucifixion. Uh, and we've discussed all the fulfilled prophecy and the promises that rose from that crucifixion. Uh, and we've read about all the just undeniable acts of power that God displayed that even history records. And there's just been so much. Uh, so we're going to read real quickly verses 45 through 54. And this kind of covers everything we've dealt with up to this point. Uh, Matthew 27, starting in verse 45, says, Now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him, to, uh, and gave him a drink. Uh, but the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him, uh, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw this earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. So that's basically what we've covered up to this point. Now, today we're going to be looking at more events surrounding the burial uh, of Jesus. And we'll see how God has a plan for victory, even when all seems lost. And if you, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but have you ever really needed something from God, needed Him to move in a big way, and it's right when you think you're done, right when you think there's no answer, it just happens? That's how God works. He always has a powerful plan laid up in store for us. He just wants to see if we have the faith to trust in it, even when it doesn't look like it's going to happen. So we'll learn a little bit about that today. So let's jump on in. Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 55. It says, Many women were there looking from a, uh, from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother uh, of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Now, I think it's really important. I stopped here because I really want to take a look at these women, these, these women that it says was watching from a distance, basically. Because I think they're often overlooked. I don't think we really pay much attention to how important they actually are. And they really are. Because these women, if you'll remember, have faithfully followed Jesus since, I mean, from the time he was arrested all the way to his burial. And they had followed him before that. They were just so loyal. They were so hardworking. And most of all, they were brave. And as you're going to see, they were actually more brave than most of the disciples. Because if you remember, what happened with the disciples when they came to arrest Jesus in the garden? They bolted, right? They ran. A lot of them just took off. Uh, now, Peter followed a little while longer, right, until he was questioned. Then he folded like a cheap tent, right? So 
Most of the disciples were so much in fear that they had taken off and were in hiding. But these women witnessed all the same events, were in the same area, yet they never wavered, not even one time. Right now, just so you know, following Jesus at this time and in this climate could cost you your life. Okay, I mean, if just one person, if one person would have recognized them as a follower of Christ, they would have probably had them put to death. Because the mob mentality was in effect right now. You know what I mean? The mob was up and, re- you know, raring to go. They wanted blood. And so anybody, if anybody would have noticed them, they would have been goners. But despite those risks, they bravely followed Jesus to the very end. And as you'll see, I mean to the very end. Right? And because of that faithfulness, think of some of the first that these women got to experience. Right? They were the first to find the empty tomb. Okay, imagine the first to come to an empty tomb and the angels speaking to you. They were the first to get to experience that. So they were actually the first to actually experience the resurrection power of God. And that's amazing, right? So they were very, very important, and they were just as effective for God as any of the other disciples. And one thing you'll learn, and I've learned this in years of ministry, is that, that God has never been biased. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your age, your race. None of that stuff means anything to God, right? None of that means anything. The only thing God sees is the heart. That's all he cares about. And if you want to be effective for him, the only prerequisite is just having bold faith. And these women had that. And in this culture, women were like second-class citizens. Okay, they only were above the Gentiles and barely, barely above the Gentiles. So you'll notice there's not a ton recorded about the things they've done. But they were very powerful disciples, and I think it's so important that we know that because even to this day, women are so effective in ministry and get so overlooked. And so I, I'm not saying this to suck up, right? My wife's not here. But I'm saying this because I, I really want you to, to I want to get that passion inside you. I want that to, to grow, and I want to encourage you. It doesn't matter what your gender is. If you feel like God is, you know, has something for you to do, and he's, and he's calling you to something, please do it. Because God's just not biased. Anyone that wants to be effective can be. So that was just a side note. But anyway, okay, let's jump back in here. Matthew 27, 57. It says, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it be given to him. So Matthew, remember how Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all give us different perspectives, right? Matthew just tells us that this is a wealthy man from Arimathea. Now Mark gives us a little more detail. He tells us that this man was also a member of the Sanhedrin Council. Okay, Matthew 15, or I'm sorry, Mark uh, 1543 says, Joseph, uh, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up the courage and went before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Okay, now the council is talking about here is called the Sanhedrin Council. How many people have heard of that? Sanhedrin Council. Okay, this was the governing body, I mean the governing body at the time for the Jews. All right, and there were 71 members of this council. Now think of the millions of Jews, and they, they were only selected 71 men, and he was one of them, okay? The high priest was on this council. He served as the chief officer, so this was a, a really important position. So I think it's safe to say that he was a well-respected, prominent, powerful man. Joseph wasn't just, some, you know, some disciple walking off the street. This is a very powerful man who was, you know, a disciple of Jesus, Now, John tells us a little more. John tells us that Joseph hid the fact that he followed Jesus out of fear. Okay, let's look at this. John 19, starting in verse 38. 
It says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but what? A secret one. Was there a delay? Okay, because there's no way that many people wait that long. I was just wondering. Okay, um, it says, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. Asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. So despite that, despite the fact that he was in fear, and he should have been. I mean, this is something he didn't want to get out, right? But despite all that fear, he loved Jesus. And he saw Jesus as his Savior. And he couldn't imagine allowing him to just hang there. Because they would take a body and just throw it outside of town. Just get rid of it. And he knew that's what they would do. And he just couldn't stand the thought of his Savior not having, you know, a proper Jewish burial. He just couldn't, he couldn't handle that. So he overcomes his fear and he goes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus. That was a bold, bold move. Okay, that's a huge, bold move. Now Pilate agreed and probably because he knew how prominent Joseph was and he probably didn't want to upset him. So Pilate agrees and gives him the body. So Joseph's going to take this body and prepare it according to the Jewish traditions. Look at this. Matthew 27, starting in verse 59. It says, And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth uh, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn, listen to this, hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. There's those women again. Right. So we know that he had a lot to do to prepare this body. Okay, but John lets us know that there was another secret disciple that Matthew didn't tell us about. And this secret disciple was also on the council. John 1938. It says, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one uh, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission, so he took away his body. Nicodemus, you guys remember that name? Nicodemus, which I think is a cool as heck name. This is one of those Bible names I would take, but anyway. Uh, Nicodemus, who uh, had first come to him by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloe, uh, about 100 pounds in weight, in our weights, that was in Roman pounds, in our weights that'd be about 72 pounds. Uh, so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the, cu- as is the custom, the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had, been yet, had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Okay, now, Nicodemus was also on the Sanhedrin council. So we're talking two of the 71 most powerful men in the nation of Israel were actually secret disciples of Jesus. And both of them were willing to risk everything to make sure that Jesus had the proper burial. So he actually was helping Joseph prepare this body. Right now, if the Jews found out about this, first of all, they definitely, they definitely would have lost their seat on the council. That's, that's a no-brainer. Uh, probably even worse yet, they would have lost their ability to vote on, on national affairs. That would have been taken immediately too. But most probably, they would have been seen as a, as a traitor. And they would have killed him. So there was a lot that they were putting on the line here. right? But they were obviously, obviously willing to take that chance. Now, if you read a lot of church history, a lot of them believe that they did find out. I mean, don't you think that would be kind of hard to hide? That you, you know, took the body of Jesus and buried it in your own tomb? 
So a lot of history teaches that they, they actually were caught, but they were willing to take this chance, right? They were willing to come out, if you will, and let everybody know that they were, they were believers. Because, listen, there's one thing I found, and that's it's almost impossible to hide your faith if it's genuine. You know what I mean? If it's genuine, it's almost impossible to hide your faith. I remember when I first became a Christian, you know, this was all new to me. A lot of you people were raised in church. You know, a lot of you people are, you know, were, were used to all the traditions and all the things, and I wasn't. I mean, I, I grew up going to church now and then, but this was all pretty new to me. And so I didn't really know what to say to all my friends. I don't know if any of you guys were there, but I mean, I was usually, you know, the life of the party, the wildest one there, the drunkest one there, the highest one there, you know. And so now I had to explain why that wasn't the case anymore, and I didn't know what to say. And so I remember when they first started calling me and saying, hey, you want to go here, you want to go there? I'm not going to tell you the names of the places because I'll date myself. But, and I would make up excuses. No, I'm, I'm, I won't be able to go this weekend. Because I didn't know what to say. And, you know, and to be honest with you, I was a little bit afraid they'd go, oh, great. You're one of the Bible thumpers now, right? So it just seemed like they kept calling, and, and I kept being put to the test. And I remember the day when I actually said, listen, I'm not the old Chris anymore. I, I trusted Christ. Uh, I'm a Christian now, and I just don't feel like that lifestyle is anything I should be affiliated with anymore because it almost killed me. I mean, that, nobody cared that it almost killed me, and it almost killed me, and he's delivered me from that, and so I just, I'm not going to have anything to do with that lifestyle. And the phone completely stopped ringing. I mean, that must have spread around town in like two minutes, right? Because everybody acted like, you know, I was in David Koresh's cult or something now. They just, like, completely banished me. I, none of my friends were talking to me anymore. But something inside me made it impossible for me to hide that faith. And what it is is the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit takes up housing inside you, and that happens the moment you believe, He's not going to sit idly by and allow you to deny the one who gave you eternal life. It's not going to happen. Have you guys ever felt that feeling that moves you when somebody's saying something about God or about faith, you know, whether it be on TV or in a school, and something, does anybody else get, like, riled in here? And you just feel like you've got to do something, you know what I mean? Or that, that discussion's coming up where someone's mocking God, and that, that fire inside you starts to move, and you just, the shyest person has to say something. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit inside of you will not allow you to hide your faith. Because, listen, Jesus didn't privately go to the cross. So his followers shouldn't hide the fact that they believe, right? Now, listen, there are people, for whatever reason, that try to, you know, ignore the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And if you do that, you will have a life full of discipline, promise me. I mean, I promise you, you'll have a, you'll have a life full of discipline. But, but trust me, it's almost impossible to hide that. If, it, if their faith didn't come out here when they were going to get that body, it would have eventually. Because it's just too much, right? Okay, now let's go back to preparing this body. Preparing, you know, the body for a Jewish burial wasn't quick, and it wasn't easy. It was entailed. I mean, there was a lot that went into it. See, the, the law stated that dead bodies couldn't stay on a stake all night. Instead, they had to be buried the same day. Look at Deuteronomy 21, starting in verse 22. It says, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put, uh, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, or a stake is what they're talking about, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For, listen to this, for he 
who is hanged is accursed of God, so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Okay, so remember the passage where it says Jesus became a curse on our behalf? Remember that? The Apostle Paul talks about that to the Galatians. Look at this. Galatians 3.13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become what? A curse for us. That's what this was talking about. Okay, it says, for it is written, cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. That's where that came from. Okay, so this wasn't going to be some small task they had to do. Okay, so to prep, Joseph would have had to buy clean fine linen to wrap Jesus' body. He couldn't just wrap him in any cloth. It had to be the clean, had to be new, fine linen, right? And here's the, here's the kicker that a lot of us don't think about. They had to go take his body down themselves. They didn't bring the body to them. They had to go and take that body down. Now, just imagine for a second having to pull those spikes out of his wrists and out of the arches of his feet and lower that body. Can you imagine what a sobering moment that is? I mean, how, seeing how beaten he was and how marred he was. You know, I mean, they had to take that body down themselves before they could prepare it. I mean, that's just, that's just beyond me. Then they would have to wash it and cleanse the body, wipe it all the way down. Can you imagine the emotions that had to be going through them when they're doing this? I mean, this is, there's so much more to this than we think about. Right, then it tells us that Nicodemus brought about 72 pounds, 100 Roman pounds, about 72 pounds of costly mixture of, of myrrh and, and aloes. And here's how they would do it. It's kind of strange. They would lay out all this fine linen, and then they would take the, the spices and mix them together, and they would put them all through that linen, lay it on the linen. Okay, and then when they would wrap them, they would wrap them with the spices already in inside or laying on top of the linen so that he was wrapped with you know spices and linen and the spices were you know to you know ward off the smell so imagine how long that would take imagine how difficult that would be right wrapping his body and had to be wrapped neatly right had to be wrapped completely neatly now the interesting thing is they get all this done and here's these women again right it says that these that these women were there also. It was uh, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James. And here's why I believe they were there, right? I think, I believe they helped them prepare that body. I do. Remember, they followed Jesus through every step of the way at this point. Do you really think they weren't there when he was taken down from the cross by these two men? And if they were standing there watching him prepare that body after all the times they had served him, you know, if, you know, you know washing his feet with the tears... Do you really think they would stand by and not help them? I believe the whole reason that they were mentioned here was that they helped with this body. They helped prepare this body. Or why would they even mention them? Why would they even say they were there? See, there again, you know, this culture didn't tell us a lot about women, but I believe those women helped actually prepare that body and wrap that body up. Right? And after all this, they could lay him in a tomb. Now, ironically, even the way they prepared his body was prophecy. Look at Isaiah 53, 9. It says, His grave was assigned with, wick, with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Who was the rich man? 
Joseph, right? It says he's a wealthy man. He was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor were there any deceit in his mouth, right? Now, that's a lot to do before the day of preparation. They had to have all that done, okay? Now, they take him to the tomb. There's so many things I want to tell you that I'm not sure I should because I can't prove it, but I have some theories. You want me to share them? Okay, remind me. I'll get to that. Sorry. But the tomb that they laid Jesus' body in was Joseph's tomb. And one of the Gospels mentions, I believe it's John, mentions that it was in a garden. Okay? Now, there are a lot of people who believe that that garden they mention was the same place the Garden of Eden was found. And that tomb was God opening up what he had closed when man sinned and was cast out of the garden. And when he was placed in that tomb, they were saying, this is Jesus opening up that access to God again. That gives me, ooh, I don't know. You know, I can't prove that 100%, but does anybody else think that is cool as heck? Yeah, you know I mean, that makes some sense. But anyway, don't call me a false teacher, right? but I, there's some evidence for that. So anyway, they go to this, um, this tomb that Joseph owned, right? Now, this tomb would have been extremely expensive, extremely expensive, because not only would you have to buy the land, but this was hewn out of the mountainside. It says hewn out of a rock. I meant hewn out of a mountainside. That means that they literally chipped and chiseled this tomb out of a rock. Okay, they, they chiseled inside of a rock and made a room inside of a rock. Okay, this was not a, you know, something easy. This was a time-consuming, expensive process. And this was done for Joseph himself. So this was a really big sacrifice and a huge display of his love for him to give him his hand-hewn tomb i mean little did he know at that time he was going to get back good as new in three days anyway but that was a huge sacrifice right for joseph to make and then matthew said that joseph rolled this large stone in front of the tomb okay now the tomb and the stone that sealed it are really important so we're going to take a look at those for a second because let me explain what this would have looked like this would have looked like a cave in the side of a mountain is what it would have looked like okay and the tomb would have been just to tell you how entailed it was, it would have been between five and six feet high. Okay, we're talking a, you know, pretty large cave that was cut out of this rock. And the entrance of the mouth, uh, the mouth of the cave, there was only one entrance and one exit, obviously. It was in a rock. Would have been between five and six foot high also. They said, you know, most people could walk under it without, you know, having to stoop over. So we're talking a large room that was cut out of this rock, and it only had one entrance and one exit. Okay, one entrance and one exit, and that's really important. We'll come back to that. Okay, and then the stone that they would use to, to seal these tombs was between five and six feet in diameter, and history teaches that they were between one and two foot thick. Okay, so weight-wise, it's been estimated that it would weigh anywhere from one to two tons, so we're talking two to four thousand pounds is just what the stone that would block the tomb would weigh. And I know what you're thinking. Why are you giving me all these thinking facts that I'll never remember? We're coming back to that. Trust me. Okay. So this was a huge, huge undertaking, right? And they would have this stone. It was kind of neat the way they did it. They would make this stone, and then they would have it rolled up on an incline above the mouth of the cave. Right? And then they would build these tracks 
they would carve these tracks, rather, in, in the mountain that would guide it right to where it had to be. So, because it's not like you could say, you know, call your cousin and go, hey, Bill, let's move this stone. And we're talking 4,000 pounds. So they would set it up there so that when it was time, they would shove the stone and it would roll down that hill and hit and seal exactly where it had to be. Now think about it. If somebody was still working in there and that rock came, you're done, right? You're not getting out. A 4,000-pound stone is now in front of the mouth of this cave. Okay, so this was, this was really huge. They would just roll it into position. So this wasn't some easy stone to roll, roll around, right? So I know this is a lot of information, and it seems useless, but it really isn't because the, this, it comes in handy when you're dealing with the skeptics and the atheists. Okay, now, every piece of me wants to go through all their arguments. I can't do that for time's sake. Oh, no, I can't do that for time's sake, right? But I will go through one with you. But first, see, there were and there still are a bunch of theories as to why that tomb was empty, right? And they're made by people who don't want to believe. You know, they don't want to be accountable to a God. They don't want to, you know, acknowledge that there's a God and that Jesus was his son. So they come up with some of these crazy explanations. When you hear some of them, they're just nuts. It just shows you how bad they just don't want to be accountable because some of these are just nuts. The only one I'm going to share with you is called the swoon theory. Anybody ever hear that one? Good, then you're going to learn about it. Right? Now, the swoon theory says that Jesus faked his death. <laughs> so he pretends to be dead on the cross. He wasn't really dead. He, he pretends to be dead and, and fools the professional executioners who do this for a living, right? And stays playing possum until he's put in this tomb with a 4,000-pound stone in front of it. And then when everybody goes to sleep, he sneaks up and moves the stone and goes and hides. Yeah, that's legit the swoon theory. Let's look at that, shall we? Okay. This is nuts, right? Think about this for a second. If this theory were correct, it would still be a miracle. It would still take God to do that. Right? Because listen, okay... He was beaten beyond all recognition. They said he was hardly recognizable as a man. This is before he was crucified, right? Beaten beyond recognition. And then he was taken to the cross and spikes were driven through his wrist and the arches of his feet. This isn't something that the Bible just tells us about. Secular historians of that time, philosophers, wrote about this. It happened. They drove these spikes through the, his wrists and through the arches of his feet. So he was nailed to a cross, right? Remember, when they dropped the cross, it said that it pulled his arms, what? Out of socket. So he was beaten beyond all recognition. No one's been beaten like that before. He had, you know, five to nine inch spikes ran through his wrists and through the arches of his feet, dropped into position, and his arms were pulled out of socket. Okay, this is the condition he's in. Not to mention, he hung on that cross for hours, right, asphyxiating, his lungs filling up with fluids. He was dehydrated, he had a huge loss of blood, and he was weak. Then professional executioners, people who do this for a living, came up and checked him because Pilate said, go make sure they're dead. You can't be there on the day of preparation. And they came and even did a second look, and he was dead. 
These were professionals. They couldn't mess up. You didn't mess up when the Romans gave you an order. You did it. So you can bet they made absolutely sure he was dead, right? So if he survived all that and fooled the executioner, now what? Now he has to move that 4,000-pound stone uphill without anybody noticing, which will be harder than you think. I'll explain it here in a minute. And run and hide and never be seen again, (laughs) I mean, until he was seen in a spirit form. Somehow he had to fake that. Right, so it takes more faith to believe in the swoon theory than to believe in Jesus, I think, don't you? I mean, it takes, if you can believe in the swoon theory, you should be the greatest servant of God ever known to mankind. You have unshakable faith if you can believe that, right? It's just, it blows me away. Now, this theory actually became popular in the late 18th century, early 19th century, right? Now, thankfully, it's not really a thing anymore because you saw how easily that was debunked. Well, I'm not the only one that's done that. So not many people believe in, in this swoon theory anymore. Just uh, what we like to call crazy people do. Um, but this is probably one of the weaker ones. And, and there's a lot more theories. We'll look at them more as we fin- go through this chapter. But we've got to move on. Okay, so this cracks me up. So Jesus is already dead. He's in a tomb. And the Jews are still plotting against him. Look at this, Matthew 27, 62. It says, now on the next day, the day after the preparation, uh, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver, man, that takes some guts, doesn't it? For them to call him a deceiver, all the things they lied about in the kangaroo court they put him through, ugh, that just gets to me. But anyway, uh, while he, that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to him, You have a guard. Go and make it secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. Okay, so to cover their butts, because I, you know... Let's just be honest. They had to know by this time he really was the son of God. But they were too invested. Their chips were on the table. They couldn't admit that now, right? So they're saying, listen, he did say he was going to, you know, he was going to rise again after three days. So let's put a Roman guard there so that his disciples don't come and steal his body. Now, does anybody else find a flaw in that plan? What the, I mean, they really think that the disciples... The guys who ran when he was being arrested and to everything we can see in the scriptures were still in hiding at this point. They were still hiding for fear at this point. And they thought that all of a sudden they were going to get bold and come and take on a Roman guard and break a seal of Rome. And after they did their ninja stuff and took care of the guards, they were going to have to move a four-ton stone up a hill by themselves and hold it there and take the body of Jesus. You see how stupid that is? I mean, give me a break. They did not have the guts to come and do that, right? They ran and were still hiding. And that, Now, this Roman seal that they put on a tomb was basically, if that seal was broken, anyone that broke that seal would be executed. So it was kind of overkill. They had a guard there. They had it sealed with the Roman seal. So with the security and the fear of the disciples, 
there was no chance somebody was going to steal this body. Stealing the body was a a, a non-issue. So the only way that tomb would ever be empty is by the power of God's own hand. Now, has anybody noticed something here, what's happened? God is behind all of that, right? Because now he made sure that there was a guard there, it was sealed, the positioning of the tomb, how heavy the stone was, all this was ordained by God because God wanted everyone to know when that tomb was empty, it was him. He's saying, what excuse can they have now? It's guarded by professional guards. It's been sealed, the positioning of the stone. This is not something that they ingeniously did, the Jews ingeniously came up with. This was the plan of God. Because I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but has God ever done anything in your life in a way that you just had to know it was him? Anybody ever have that? I mean, whether it be the check that comes in the mail you don't know about that's exactly to the dime what you need. You know, I've had that happen before. Or that time where, you know, somebody that was never supposed to walk again walks, or someone who was supposed to die makes a recovery, or someone you've been praying for for a long time who has been rejecting God for a long time, the the right person comes in their life and they trust God. He always does these things in ways that you just can't deny it's Him. I mean, you just have to know it was Him that did that, right? This is why it was set up like this. He didn't want anybody to be able to deny that this was His hand working so that when that tomb was found empty everybody that saw it said it had to be the hand of god because look at everything the jews did right now they're going to try to cover their butt again i'll cover that at another time but what happens at this empty tomb in my opinion is one of the most powerful things in scripture and the way the angels react makes me laugh every time because they don't understand why we're so dumb is that everybody wouldn't say, well, this is God's son. right?" so this is set up for one of the most powerful sections of Scripture you're going to read in the Bible, and we'll look at that next week. I don't have time to cover that, so we'll we'll pick it up there next week. So if you will, I'm going to ask that you bow your heads. If this is your first time, we always like to have an invitation. The reason we do that is we just want to give you the opportunity to take that first step. Now, we don't call people up front. We don't do that. I don't do the high-pressure tactic stuff. I just know that I remember what it felt like to be confused. I remember what it felt like to have that yearning and not know where to go. So if you're not sure where you stand with Christ, just make eye contact and put your head right back down. And I'm just going to pray for you. I'm not going to bless those people. I'm not going to point you out. I'm just going to pray for you. Bless those people. Because, listen, that first step is acknowledging that you're hearing his voice. And once you've done that, he'll take control from there. If you're listening online or watching, uh, God knows your heart, I'll be praying for you. But believers, we're trying really hard to go through these scriptures slowly and to cover the most intricate details in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And the reason is, we're hoping that this will strengthen your faith and will light a fire under you. Because I don't know if you've noticed but the world's not getting better. And it's not becoming more Christian-friendly. Now, more than ever, we need believers to be who they are, to not hide their faith, and to be bold in sharing their faith with people. And that's always my prayer for this church and for all believers. Let's pray. 
God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I just thank you for your love and your compassion. I just thank you, God, that you can love us despite the fact that we always let you down. We always sin. Our nature takes over, and every day we prove why we needed Jesus because we could never be good enough on our own. So God, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, I just pray that whatever's holding them back, you'd remove that. And I just pray they would trust you to keep your word. You promised that if anyone would believe, they would have eternal life. Meaning if they could just believe that what your son did was enough. God, the evidence is there. I just pray they open their heart to receive it. If they make that decision, I pray that they contact or contact someone, good Christian or good Christian organization to help them in their walk. And Lord, for those of us who are believers, we've become complacent. The body of Christ as a whole has become complacent. Let us look at every detail of the great sacrifice that Jesus made, the great price that he paid. Let us look at every detail and let it change our hearts again and ignite a passion in us to share our faith, to stand boldly for our faith. We believe the time is short, Lord, and we need people who are willing to stand up for you and to share your message. God, we just pray as we leave here that you would go with us and keep us safe. Let us live what we profess. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together and give you all the praise, honor, and glory you're so worthy of at least one more time. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.